I know I say this every time, but it's true. Jesus said it, and we do need to live by God's word. So, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from God's mouth, including the words of Luke 15, please open your Bibles to Luke 15, verses 11 to 32. Historically known as the parable of the prodigal son, Luke 15, it might be more appropriately called the prodigal sons or the lost sons. We have the lost, we talked last week about the lost sheep and the lost coin, and now we talk about the lost sons in Luke chapter 15. If we wanted to be even more accurate with our title than that, we could even move to say, because I don't think the lost sheep was about the lost sheep, it was about the joyful shepherd who celebrated the lost sheep that was found. And the lost coin wasn't about the coin. It was about the woman, the widow, who found the coin and the joy she had. And so with this parable, it's not, it's not primarily even about the sons. But it's about the father who rejoices and celebrates his lost son who is found. And so Luke chapter 15, before I read the parable of verses 11 to 32, I want to read to you again verses 1 and 2. Because this is very important. The first two verses of the chapter are so important to understanding the parable. Because this is the reason why Jesus tells the parable. So look again at Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. It says this. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes, those are the religious people, were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You can feel their disapproval and disgust. Now we get to verse 11. Let's go to the story. Jesus also said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the carob pods the pigs were eating, but no one would give him any. When he came to his senses, or like how the King James Version says, when he came to himself, when he came to his senses... He said, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him. And was filled with compassion. He ran. Threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his slaves, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
So they began to celebrate. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field and he came near the house. He heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him. And your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I have been slaving many years for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Father, we pray that your heart would be seen and felt tonight. And we pray that as we see and feel your heart for the lost and your joy in the salvation of sinners, we pray that it would mold and shape our hearts to be more like your heart. Happy, rejoicing, passionate, pursuing the lost. So, Father, take your word by your spirit's power and show us the glories of Jesus that we might be changed from one degree of glory to the next, which is impossible for us to do. So please, Lord, help the brothers and sisters who are here. For any non-Christian friends here, Lord, we pray that you would save them tonight, that you would open their eyes to see the beauty of Jesus and that they would let go of everything to follow you. And we pray that whatever transformation you do in our hearts here would affect the rest of our church family as we seek to build them up week in and week out, day in and day out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I prayed, we need a heart that is burdened for the lost. That's what we need. A heart that cares for the lost. We need, a, we need, a, we need to be restless for souls. We need to be restless for souls. We need to be longing for their salvation and their good. We need to be gracious and sacrificial in engaging lost people. And then we need to be passionately joyful in celebrating when God saves sinners and when God transforms sinners. That's God's heart. He's restless, in a sense. He's pursuing. He's passionate. He's like the father here, waiting at the doorstep, looking down the road waiting for sinners to repent, calling sinners even to repent. We could even go further theologically and say causing sinners to repent. But, but the point here is that the Father cares about the salvation of the lost, and we want that to mold our hearts as well. Here's the main idea of this parable. Those who can't rejoice, I think the main point out of the two sons is actually the older brother and not the younger brother. The, the younger brother is really the whole story of the book of Luke. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. The surprise in this story is the older brother at the end. The ending is the main point that Jesus leaves us with, and he actually doesn't finish the story. Did the older brother go in? Did he stay outside? 
We don't know. Jesus kind of leaves us on a cliffhanger here. But the reason we, he tells this story is because, remember, Luke 15, 1 and 2, that as there were prostitutes and tax collectors and scandalous sinners there with Jesus, the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of the day, disapproved. They complained. They were disgusted with Jesus for those things. And that's why he tells these three parables, these three famous stories. So God wants us uh, God wants us to know that those who can't rejoice in the scandalous, and it is scandalous, the scandalous joy of God in saving sinners are left out of the party because of their self-righteousness. At least his brother was up until the point of the end of the story. Here's the goal that God has for us. He wants us to see ourselves. And I say this for me. I've been in the church since 1988. I know you've been here longer. A lot of you have, but I didn't live the reckless life in high school and college. I'm more prone to being an older brother than the younger brother in the story. And so what I think God has for us who have been not so squeaky clean, but generally clean, what God wants us to see is our self-righteousness. He wants me and us to repent of our self-righteousness and then passionately rejoice when God pursues and saves sinners that we would not even want to associate with. And we need to love that so much that we actually become part of God's ambassadors who reach out to them. Okay, so there's two scenes in the story. Scene one, the younger brother. Scene two, the older brother. And we'll just take those two scenes, we'll think about it for a little bit, and then we'll, we'll close in prayer, and then we'll go to our prayer time, okay? So scene one, the younger brother, verses 11 through 24. Here in this story, you have this son, and he is shameless. No shame whatsoever. As rude and as disrespectful as a son can be, this son was to his father. What does he say? Look at what he says in verse 12. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me what? Give me my share. Give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. That is audacious. What does he want? His inheritance, right? When do you receive an inheritance? When what? When the father dies. You know what he's basically saying to his dad? I wish you were. I wish you were dead. Why can't you just die already so I can have my money? Okay, well, since you won't die, give me the money anyways. That is shameless, right? I mean, that's as disrespectful as it gets. I wish you were dead, dad. I want the money. Give it to me now, even though you're not dead yet. No shame. And you know, in this culture, fathers would beat their grown sons physically and and remove them from the house. Kick them out. You get no inheritance now. That would be an appropriate response in that culture. If you just take the law covenant of Moses in the Old Testament, if you take the law covenant, by the way, um, for you parents with the children, don't worry if they talk. We have microphones to speak over them, so don't feel too shy about them. Being here, we're, we're, we're glad for them to be here. To hear God's word, even if they're not paying attention fully. They still get discipled by this. I know I did when I was a kid. Okay, back to this. So, so you have this son here who's so shameless, wants his, wants his dad to die. And, oh, that's what I was going to say. In the law covenant of the Old Testament, if a, if a, if a son or daughter, particularly a son, um, talked back to his parents, you know what the, the punishment was? It was death. You could stone them and execute them in the Old Testament, in the covenant of Moses. 
And remember, here in Luke 15, they're still under the law covenant. So for a son to say, Dad, I wish you were dead, I want my money, you could legally execute your son. And that would be in obedience to the law covenant of Moses. It's a, lot, it's a different world than our world today, 2015 America. But that's, that's the law of the land. at this. Well, the religious law, because they're actually under Roman law, technically, so they can't kill them. But anyways, that, that's the point. Is This is a shameless son with a shameless request, totally disrespecting his dad. And if you think that is shameful, the dad's response is even more shameful. In that culture, at least. What does he do in verse 12? He asks for it, and what does the dad do? He gave it to him. That would have shocked all the listeners. Are you kidding me? The dad was disrespected like that, and then he gave it to his son? This story is ridiculous. I mean, you could, you could almost hear them already throwing their hands up. I'm done with this story, Jesus. This is, this is so impossible and preposterous. Okay, so he gives it to him. And then the son, not many days later, he gathers his things together, and all he had and traveled to a distant land. Now, when he gathers everything he has, that means he's not coming back, right? He's done with the family. He's done with dad. He's done with the older brother. He's out of here. I'm not, I'm not just packing up some things. I'm not going on a trip for a vacation to come back home. No, I am out of here. Everything I can get, pack it up, pack it in. I'm gone. So here he is. He's on his way, gone, doesn't want anything to do with his dad or family. So he goes to a far off country in verse 13, and he squanders all of his money on foolish living. Seems like the son never worked a day in his life. Doesn't know how to handle money. Gets the money and then doesn't know how to handle it and squanders it all. After he spent everything, guess what happens? By God's providence in the story, a famine strikes the land. Well, all the more you needed, you needed savings for times like this, right? Rainy day savings. Emergency fund. No emergency fund here. It's all gone. He spent it all. So he has nothing. So what does he do? He goes to some of the citizens in this country, which apparently is a Gentile country, and he starts to feed pigs. He wants to eat the food of the pigs. He basically hits rock bottom. And then it says in verse 17, and this is what has to happen to people before they come to Christ, usually. Verse 17 says, he came to his what? Senses. Or if you have the King James Version, he came to what? Himself. You know where... You, you have a voice, you know, there's PJ and then there's PJ over here talking to PJ, right? You have that voice who's kind of like talking to you and you're, you're kind of yourself, but you have your other self talking and his, he's starting to listen to himself. PJ, what are you doing? Don't you realize? And so he comes to his senses. Remember, we, we read that in 2 Timothy chapter 2.26 earlier this morning, coming to your senses. He comes to his senses. He wakes up. The blindness, the spiritual blindness of his sin he gets a little moment of clarity. And in that moment of clarity, he doesn't push the moment of clarity away. He seizes it. And that's what you need to do if you're going to repent. You get a moment of clarity and you don't push away the clarity. You embrace it. He comes to his senses. What am I doing here? My dad's servants, my dad's slaves eat better than this. I'm here with pigs and I barely have enough leftovers from the pigs. I'm just going to work for my dad. Maybe, just maybe he'll take me back. There's a chance. My dad's always been a loving guy. I mean, I did pretty much slap him in the face and he gave me all the money anyways. Good chance he'll at least take me back. So he gets up, it says in verse, we're on verse 18 now. He's going to get up and he's, notice what he says. I have sinned against two. 
two things, two entities he sinned against. In verse 18, who has he sinned against? See that in verse 18? He says to his father, I will go to my father and say, I have sinned against heaven and against you or in your sight. So whenever we sin, remember, every sin we commit against another person is always a sin against God. Heaven, yeah, heaven and heaven being God. So, and that's always the bigger deal. I mean, I don't want to sin against anyone, but I do. My bigger deal is sinning against God every time I sin against somebody. But he realizes that. He came to his senses. I didn't just disobey my dad. I didn't just dishonor my dad because what is the, is it the fifth commandment? Honor your father and mother. And who commanded that? God did. So if I'm dishonoring my father, I'm sinning against my father. But if God's the one who commanded that command, who else am I disobeying? I'm disobeying God. So I sinned against God and I sinned against my father. And I have to admit both. Remember David? He says this crazy claim in Psalm 51. Remember he he committed adultery with Bathsheba, killed Bathsheba's husband, and covered up the murder. And then in Psalm 51, when he repents, what does he say? Against you, talking to God, against you and you only have I sinned. And you just scratch your head and you're saying, wake up, David, what are you talking about? You sinned against Bathsheba, you sinned against her husband Uriah, you sinned against your son who died, you sinned against the whole nation as the king? What do you mean you only sinned against God? David got that, though. What's the main thing? Whenever you sin against anyone, the biggest deal of it all is that you sin against God. But you also sin against them. And he comes to a census here. I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned in your sight. I'm no, verse 19, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. So he gets up, he's on his way, and guess who's at the porch? Looking out down the road. Dad. Every day, apparently, Dad has been there looking out waiting for his son, hoping his son would come. Off in the distance, he sees a figure. Can't make it out. Ah, can't be my son. Gets a little bit closer, a little bit closer. He starts to realize, that's my boy. That's him. What does he do? He does what Jewish men in that culture never do. He runs. That is, a, that culturally, women ran, kids ran. Men didn't run. That was a sign of, you know, that was unbecoming as a, of a man in that culture. This man picks up his, I want to say skirt, it's not a skirt, I don't want to be disrespectful, his gown, I don't know, whatever that, you know, he picks it up, his, uh, he, he, he gets his clothes, his cloak, pick, picks it up and runs to his son. It was shameful to show your legs in that culture. So he runs to his son. Notice, he was shameful or he was shameless when he gave the, the inheritance. He doesn't care what other people think even as his son comes. He's just glad his son is home. And so he embraces him, kisses him, give him a ring, give him clothes, give him sandals. Let's, let's have a celebration. My son is lost, but now he is found. So here we have a picture of repentance. We have a picture of, and repentance is turning from your sin, admitting it and going for forgiveness. You have a picture here of forgiveness and restoration. The dad doesn't berate him. The dad doesn't have his, his arms crossed. He doesn't have his finger out and saying, I told you so. Ha ha. Do you regret it now? No, he doesn't, he doesn't do that. that. That doesn't mean there's no place for teaching a lesson. But the, the attitude is not, I told you so. The attitude is, this is unbelievable. My son is home. I thought he was dead. He's alive. It's celebration. So here's the point. And this was the point of the, the two previous parables. God celebrates the salvation of sinners. 
God rejoices in saving sinners. God rejoices in the repentance of sinners. He loves it. He loves when we repent. He loves when we humble ourselves. He loves it. He loves it. He loves it. He rejoices. You want to put a smile on God's face? Go to Him like this. Like we sang, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And we're going to get to more of that with the older brother. So that's scene one, okay? Scene one, the point of scene one is God loves sinners. He embraces sinners who repent and he is happy to celebrate. Scene two, the older brother. Verses 25 to 32. So now we're, we're down to 25. So the brother gets news. He's in the field and he starts to hear music and dancing. What's going on in there? He asks one of the servants in verse 26, what's going on in there? And what does this mean? Your brother is, is here. Your dad killed the fattened calf because your brother's back safe and sound. And so the brother got happy and excited. My brother's back. Yes. He runs into the party, right? No. He doesn't run into the party. He's not happy. Verse 28. He became angry. He became angry and didn't want to go in. And now you have the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Remember who are hearing this story? Finally, someone with some sense. Right? That's what they're thinking as they're hearing the story. Finally, someone with some sense. Someone's got to stand up for for righteousness here. And so his father came out and pleaded with him. Again, another shameful act. The father's not supposed to be the one pleading. He's the dad in this situation. They're supposed to be coming to dad, especially in that culture. In American culture, that makes a lot more sense. In that culture of the first century, this makes almost no sense. But the dad comes out there and he's pleading again because he's a loving father. Verse 29, he replied to his dad, look, I have been slaving away many years for you and I have never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. So anger in verse 28, what's the attitude in verse 29? An attitude of what? How would you label that? I kept obeying you. I never disobeyed you. I slaved away from you, for you. You never gave me anything. You could call that a, a lot of things. The way I called it here in my notes is an attitude of entitlement. An attitude of entitlement. Look at, all, look at my record. How can you argue with my record? Especially when you put my record against my brother's record. This is no contest. When have I asked you to die? When have I taken your stuff and, and ran off and, and disrespected you in that way so, so, so publicly? When have you killed a fattened calf for me, God, or Father, Dad? When have you done that? Sense of entitlement here. And then a sense of perceived injustice. Look at verse 30. But when this son of yours came, notice he doesn't call him what? My brother, right? When your son came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. So here's a sense of perceived injustice. This is not fair. This is not fair. This is not right. He doesn't want to go into the party. He doesn't go into the party. Why not? He's angry. He feels entitled. And he has perceived injustice. He's not left out of the party because... or He's not left out of the party. This is what Tim Keller says. He's not left out of the party despite his goodness. He's left out of the party because of his goodness. Because he thinks he's so good. 
we sometimes subtly think that God owes us for our goodness, for our righteousness, for our external obedience. Sometimes we act as if we can obligate God. God, I've been a pastor for this many years. I've been faithful to to preach your word. God, you owe me. How can I get whatever I'm getting? That's an elder brother mentality. When we obey God, not out of the fact that he has justified us from our sins when we deserve hell, but out of the fact that, God, you owe me now because look at how faithful I've been as a Christian. Look at my track record, God. This is not fair, God. And when you are so overwhelmed with your sense of goodness and not your sense of sin, then you act, you, we, we are tempted to have the attitude of the brother. Where we're, we're just not, we're not thankful. We're angry. We're, over, we're overwhelmed with anger. And not gratitude. So we need to repent not only from our sins and our rebellion, but we need to repent. This is what Tim Keller says again. He wrote a book called Prodigal God, which I recommend to you. He writes this, though, or says this. We need to repent not only of our sins, but also for the reasons we did right. You get that? What does he mean by that? He, what he means by that is, when we do right things, you can do right things for the wrong motives, wrong reasons. And when you do the right things for the wrong reasons, that's also sin. Did the son obey the dad? Did he stay in the house? Did he keep the commands of his dad? Yes, but for what reasons? For a sense of entitlement. Dad, you owe me. And for that, he was pushed away from the father, right? It was his own sense of goodness that pushed him away from his dad. That's why he couldn't celebrate with his dad. He was too full of his own goodness. And he did the good for the wrong reasons. And we Christians, I speak for myself as as well, as someone who is trying to do good every day, fill my life with good works. I can do good for the wrong reasons. You can do good for the wrong reasons. And you'll know it when you feel entitled, you feel like God owes you, and when God does something that you don't approve, you get angry. That's what happened here. And that's what, God's try- that's what Jesus is trying to point out to the Pharisees and the religious leaders here. Is that what you think is unfair is actually not unfair at all. Now, why? I had another um, parable here. I'm not going to get into it now just for the sake of time. I'm going to close with 31 and 32. But let me just give it to you for homework if you want to look at it later. Try reading this one. I didn't get this for a long time and it bugged me like crazy. Matthew chapter 20 verses 1 through 16. Maybe I'll preach on that next Sunday night. Matthew 21 through 16 is a parable of um, a man who gives wages. So he says, work for me, I'll give you 10. I'll just make it up now. I'll give you $100 today if you work for me. Or I'll give you $500 if you work for me. A guy starts at 8 a.m. A guy starts at 12 p.m. A guy starts at 2 p.m. A guy starts at 4 p.m. Everyone's off at 5 p.m. At the end of the whole day, he gives all of them the same amount of money. And it seems unfair. And Jesus says, it's fair. I'm not going to get into it now just because of... But that used to bug me when I would read that as a kid. I'm like, that is not fair. That guy worked seven hours or a full day. That guy only worked one hour and he got the same pay. That's not fair. And Jesus is like, that's fair. I'm just like, what? And so anyways, you could wrestle with that later. I think... But what that brought out for me, even from Matthew 20, that brought out my self-righteousness there too. I'll try to explain that next Sunday, maybe if that's where we study next week. You can look at that for homework though. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. It, it's, a, it's a parable that bugged me for many years. And I think I get it now. 
But let's go to the end of this parable and then we'll close. Verses 31 and 32. Here's the explanation. Why would you, why would you kill a fattened calf, which obviously is a neighborhood party now, for my brother who, um, who ran away and, and took a third of your possessions and property and assets? Verse 31. Here's the dad's reply. Here's the heart of the father. Son, he said to me, you are always with me and everything I have is whose? Yours. That's almost a backhanded thing here. If everything the father has is the son's and he's slaughtering a fattened calf, whose money is that? The son's, right? Everything he has is going to go to his older son. So now anything he spends on his younger brother is what he's spending out of his own money eventually because everything's his inheritance now. The other son has no more inheritance. So anything the dad spends to celebrate is actually coming on the brother's bill. Eventually, right? Because it's all his now. But it's not his yet because the dad's still alive. But the, that's the point. Is, and that's what the dad says in 31. Everything I have is, it's yours. Everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was, de- was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. What does Jesus want us to get from this? He's telling the older brother, you should have rejoiced when your younger brother came home. All that I have is yours. Now, what Jesus wants to see, what he wants the crowd to see is the older brother here is like the Pharisees and the religious leaders of of verse 2 of Luke 15, 2. Jesus wants them to see themselves like that. But he wants you to see something else when he says, everything I have is yours. What should the son have done? If you love your dad and your younger brother runs off and it's breaking your dad's heart, what would you do? What should you do if you're a good older brother, if you're a good son of your father? And you see your dad's heart broken every day. What should you do? What should you try to do? Go after the brother, right? You know what, dad? I got this. Dad, just, just let me, let me, let me go. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll take some food and I'll go. Let me go find, let me go find him and make sure he's okay. Cause I see you're just worried here, dad. Let me go at my own expense and let me go out there and try to find, find my brother, your son, and let me check if he's okay. Let me try to bring him back. Let me try to convince him to come back home. That's what he should have done. But instead, he stayed home and just... Actually, even when the, when the son is... When the younger brother's telling his dad, I wish you were dead, the older brother should have been there too, right? Why are you talking to dad like that? Stop talking to dad like that. No, he doesn't do it. He's, he's gone. He's nowhere to be found. He's indifferent. He's out there. Now, what should he have done? Now, that's well, that is what he should have done. He didn't do that. And so, poor younger brother didn't have an older brother who was looking out for him. But you know what? We have an older brother who actually does look out for us. Romans 8, 29 says... Romans 8, 28 says that all things work together for good to those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he called, he also predestined. Those he predestined, he also um, justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Uh, or that's, I'm going to verse 30 now. But he wants us to be conformed to... Let me read. I'm messing up here on Romans 8. Romans 8, 29 says this. Romans 8, 29 says... For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that the son would be the what? Firstborn among many brothers. In other words, the son of God is the firstborn among the brothers. 
In other words, in a sense, Jesus is the older brother. And doesn't Jesus have everything that the father's isn't everything that the father's is belongs to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He becomes the true older brother who not only leaves his home to go find the brother. He leaves heaven to come to earth to become a man. And he gives up everything he has. He humbles himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he dies for his prodigal brother. He dies for sinners and he pays their cost with everything he has so that they can be saved. He is the true older brother. He is the older brother that saves us from our sins. And so if we are going to grow with the heart of Jesus, the heart of God that rejoices in sinners, we need to be thankful that Jesus is the true older brother who doesn't, who's not indifferent, who doesn't shrug his shoulders as we are lost in our sin, but actually comes after us. So as we have our own whether we are prodigals running away from God in rebellion or whether we're religious and self-righteous, which is what I tend to be, Jesus died for all of our sins. And he calls all of us to the Father through his death and resurrection. So if you're not a Christian here, that's what God wants you to do. He wants you to repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ, the one who died for our sins, gave up everything, became a slave to the point of death, even death on a cross so that he could save us from our sins. And God raised him up from the dead and exalted him. And now he is Lord. And Jesus is calling you to call on him as Lord. And what he's telling us who are already Christians, he's calling us to check our own hearts, to repent from our own sin. And he's calling us to have that same heart that loves the lost. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are joyful and gracious. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that he came to seek and save the lost. Not just the lost son who's the prodigal, but the lost son who is the older brother. Thank you that we don't know how the story ends. Hopefully he came back into the feast. We know there's still hope for us that we too can celebrate the salvation of sinners and celebrate your scandalous grace. We pray that this parable would transform our hearts so that we love the way you love, so that we rejoice the way you rejoice. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son to die for us. Oh, how we needed your Son. We pray that you would shape our church according to this parable, that, would, it, that our heart would beat like the heart of Jesus for the lost. We pray now that as we go to our prayer time, that you would guide us, for we have many things to pray for and many things to be thankful for. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to transition now. If people want to um, be excused, this would be an okay time to go. But we're going to transition now to our time of prayer. Um, John, can you pass out the prayer sheets, please? Brandon, if you could have two microphones ready, please. We could start with sharing ten things we thank God for. What's going on with this thing? To me, Luke 17 tells, tells it all about me. You know, when you've done everything you should do, you've only done what you should do. Yeah, we are poor servants only doing what we ought to have done. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's an awesome verse because 
Yeah, that's the opposite attitude of the elder brother, where he's like, exactly. you know. Hey, a question. Yeah. What about considering moving the PM service on Sunday night earlier? Because of the driving, I can't drive at night. Okay. Um, we can talk about it. Yeah, well, I think we did that before for Merle. We did that, we did yeah. it for Merle. Yeah. It was Merle, but... Um, you know, that's going to create an issue though with the choir practicing for At three? Yeah. I don't know. Well, let's, we can let's, talk about let's, it. Let's talk about it. Yeah, yeah because I'm sitting there and I've seen two of you up here talking. <laughs> the guy with the white shirt in front of you and this guy standing off to the side. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we'll talk about it. Um, and yeah, we'll, we we'll figure something out. That. Okay. And I'll send an email out to, well, yeah, most of these are the people who come. So, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it. We'll even bring it up here and we'll, we'll pray about it tonight in our prayer meeting. Twenty-five, thirty minutes. Yeah, at the most. Okay, do you have the two mics ready? Anything to praise God for? Raise your hand. Microphone will come your way. Hopefully, does everyone get a prayer sheet? Ten things to. Brandon, you only got one mic. Oh, Rock has the other one. Okay. Ten things to thank God for. Raise your hand. Something to praise God for. Thank you, Carol and Jim, for coming. Have a good night. Okay. Family. Praise the Lord for family. Yes, Lisa. If you don't, this is speaking of family. This is Sally's sister, Lisa. I won't say hi, Lisa. Yeah. So family. Praise God for family. Amen. Okay. Nine more things to thank God for. Who else? Victoria, you have something to thank God for? You can thank God for something if you want to. Okay. Go ahead, Brett. Okay, so I, I guess you approve of that. Praise, praise God. I'm hoping that was a just and right, wise decision. Okay, good. Praise the Lord for that. My father came out to the police and was glad they were there. Realized he made an error. Okay, praise God for that. Okay, eight more things to thank God for. We should be able to have a hundred, but we're only going to go with ten. Go ahead, Rock, right here, Tim. Okay, go ahead. Oh, I just praise and thank the Lord for the visitor that came last Sunday that um, they came back. Yes, Chris and Bethany. Yeah, they, they visited last week. They came back again. Praise God for that. We heard some encouraging words from them as well. It looks like maybe they'll come back again. We'll see. Okay, that's three, seven more. Go ahead, Brandon. I was really blessed by Marvin and Jaylene today. Yeah. First yeah, Marvin and Jaylene, they were here this morning. We had lunch with them. After a good time together. They found us on the Nine Marks website for healthy churches. It's like, we're here to see your healthy church. Like, hey, we're getting there. You know, join us. You know, help us out. Okay. Praise God. Six more. Six more blessings, things to thank the Lord for. John, right here. I am thankful for the one kid who showed up to my Bible study last Friday. Praise the Lord. Profession of faith. Yeah. Okay. What's the next step for you then? Indoctrinating. <laughs> okay. Great. 
make sure we pray. Well, actually, well, let's get his name here so we can put him on the prayer list. His name is? Song Min. Okay. We'll pray for Song Min and his recent profession of faith. Good. Praise God. Other things to thank God for. I think we have five more. Who else wants to thank God? Okay. Okay. No Curtis today, huh? Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Praise God. Other, okay, we have five, four more things to be thankful 